0: Good morning, church family. I want to extend a warm welcome to our guests. I see some guests out here, and uh, I get to serve as senior pastor here at Evergreen Baptist Church. I'm so thankful to the Lord and uh, for our church members for allowing me this opportunity. I I don't take it for granted. I'm very humbled by this opportunity to bring forth God's word on a regular basis to this church. And I'm just amazed, amazed at what the Lord is doing here. Our mothers, we are grateful for you. Uh, whether you had a good experience with your mothers or a poor experience, nonetheless, we've, we, we all have mothers and we're grateful. And all of us have an opportunity to be a spiritual mother, spiritual father to someone in the church. That's why the church transcends nuclear relationships. This, is, this goes beyond anything else where any relationships that we have with one another extend, extends into eternity. So this is a spiritual family that we're a part of here at Evergreen Baptist Church because of, as we sung earlier, we have the same spiritual blood coursing through our veins. We're we're family because of Jesus Christ. Today's sermon is titled Spiritual Dullness. Spiritual Dullness. And as we sang, O Jesus, we turn our eyes to you, uh, sometimes our spiritual vision as we look to the Lord has become dull. And as we read in Exodus 32 by Brother Hugo, grateful for him reading about the golden calf, this serves as a reminder that God's people, sometimes, at times, we lose our spiritual vision on the Lord. And as was reminded through the reading, the Israelites experienced miracle after miracle. Man from heaven, quail at, being led by a cloud of fire by night. This is the Lord's people, and now Moses is getting uh, the word from God up in Mount Sinai, and all of a sudden, their spiritual vision got dull. And all of a sudden, instead of looking to the heavens, they started looking to a golden calf to worship. And that's an example, and uh, not just to say shame on the Israelites, but what a warning for all of us. Really, that's a warning as the Bible says, these things are recorded for your benefit. Some of us are prone to having spiritual dullness. And some, at times we flirt with idols. We know we do. We know other things of the world is, are become more important than Christ himself. We become less sensitive to the Spirit's work in our lives and around our community. We're less interested in God's word at times. And even you may say, my relationship right now is very cold with God. So today, this might be describing you. And I hope this sermon serves as a huge encouragement to you and me. The one question that we're going to be asking today is this. How does Jesus deal with spiritual dullness? How does he deal with this? And I think we're going to find a lot of answers out in Mark chapter 8. So if you have your Bibles, let's turn to Mark chapter 8, 1 through 21. And as we return to them, I'll give you a little bit of context. The Lord and his 12 disciples are in Decapolis. Decapolis is Jewish, non-Jewish uh, territory. This is a Gentile region. And basically they're in foreign territory, pagan territory, so to speak. Jesus just healed the deaf man, and many are gathered, gathering around him to be taught by him, and they want to be around him. Today's sermon is going to be a little bit different. We're going to take kind of a bird's eye view of three different scenes. But I think each scene talks about how the Lord deals with our spiritual dullness. And so these three scenes are going to be feeding of the 4,000. He's going to be confronted by the Pharisees, scene number two. And number three, we're going to get a special intimate teaching time for the 12. Okay? So those are the three scenes. We're going to read out of Mark 1, 1 through 21. Since it's a larger portion, let's just remain seated. I'll read for, for, from the Legacy Standard Bible, and we'll preach out of Mark 8, 1 through 21 today. God's word says this. In those days when there was, a, what, there was again a large crowd, and they had nothing to eat, Jesus called his disciples and said to them, I feel compassion for the crowd because they have remained with me now for three days and have nothing to eat. And if I send them away hungry to their homes, they will faint on their way, and some of them have come from a great distance. And his disciples answered him, where will anyone be able to find enough bread here in this desolate place to satisfy these people? And he was asking them, how many loaves do you have? And they said, seven. And he directed the crowd to sit down on the ground and taking the seven loaves, he gave thanks and broke them. And he kept giving them to his disciples to serve to them And they they served them to the crowd. And they also had a few small fish. After he blessed them, he ordered these to be served as well. And they ate and were satisfied. And they picked up seven large baskets full of what was left over of the broken pieces. Now about 4,000 were there, and he sent them away. And immediately he entered the boat with his disciples and came to the district of Dalmanutha. And the Pharisees came out and began to argue with him, seeking for him a sign from heaven, testing him. And sighing deeply in his spirit, he said, Why does this generation seek a sign? Truly I say to you, no, one, no sign will be given to this generation. And leaving them, he again embarked and went away to the other side. And they had forgotten to take bread and did not have more than one loaf in the boat with them. And he was giving the orders to them saying, watch out, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. And they began to discuss with one another the fact that they had no bread. And Jesus, aware of this, said to them, why do you discuss the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive or understand? Do you have a hardened heart? Having eyes, do you not see? And having ears, do you not hear? And do you not remember when I broke the five loaves for the 5,000, how many basket, baskets full of broken pieces you picked up? They said to him, 12. When I broke the seven for the 4,000, how many large baskets full of broken pieces did you pick up? And they said, they said to him, seven. Verse 21. And he was saying to them, do you not yet understand? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this portion of scripture. Thank you for the grace that you show the disciples and us through Mark 8, 1 through 21 and how you deal with spiritual dullness. Lord, I pray, Father, that your spirit will give us eyes to see and ears to hear, soften our hearts so that we will learn more about the gracious love of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Thank you, Father, in Jesus' name, amen. The three ways that the Lord responds to spiritual dullness goes as follows. He repeats number 2 recognizes and removes repeats recognizes and removes we'll cover these points as we always do later on in the sermon but let's go to the point number 1 how does jesus deal with spiritual dullness number 1 jesus repeats lessons repeats lessons verse 1 through 10 jesus feeds the 4000 and in matthew's account matthew 16 it said there were 4000 people not counting women and children this far exceeds 4,000. It's very similar to the feeding of the 5,000 for those of us who've been uh, marching along with, in Mark with us. And this was like spiritual deja vu as I'm reading this portion. I said, this sounds very similar to Mark chapter 6, feeding of the 5,000. I'm going to give you some examples here. There was a similar gathering, a large crowd, 4,000 apart from 5,000. Similar, similar location. It was in both were in a desolate place or a wilderness place. Similar motivation, Jesus has compassion for the people. One, in, in, in chapter six, Jesus felt compassion because there were sheep without a shepherd. He, he had a spiritual concern for the people. Today, his compassion is motivated by physical uh, compassion. He knew that they're gonna faint if they didn't eat. Similar menu, bread and fish, to, uh, you know, that's same exact menu, same direction. He tells everyone to sit down. Same waiters, the 12 go out and serve the food. So similar. Similar dependence. He prays to heaven as he distributes the food. And the same results. They were satisfied and there was plenty left over. Okay, this is almost an exact repeat of Mark 6, the feeding of the 5,000. But really, what the Lord was teaching was this, the same lesson. He was repeating a lesson. Really, that lesson was this, that Jesus is Yahweh himself. Jesus was demonstrating that he is God, again, to the disciples. The same God that rained manna from heaven is the same God that's raining manna out of his hands. Okay, this is the lesson, really. If you want to get the big idea of what the feeding of the five thousand and the four thousand is about, is that Jesus is Yahweh, the Creator God, and He repeats the same exact lesson. And why does He do this? Well, Mark six fifty two says that the twelve had not gained any insight about who Jesus was from the feeding of the five thousand. They needed a repeat. They were spiritually dull. They needed a repeat lesson. And so like in verse 4 of Mark uh, 8, and his disciples answered him, where will anyone be able to find enough bread here in this desolate place to satisfy these people? How are we going to feed these people? Had they forgotten weeks or months earlier how how Jesus fed the 5,000? Well, just like every mom in here knows, (laughs) the children need a repeat. Jesus knows that the disciples needed a repeat lesson. I mean, think about it here, how the Lord deals with spiritual dullness. He's gracious. How many of us, I mean, I know as a dad, I I, I get short sometimes, I have to say it again? I have to repeat this again? I mean, we understand this as parents, how hard that could be. Here's the Lord graciously orchestrating another lesson that was just as vivid as the first one. Let's feed 4,000 people, and I'm gonna show you once again that I'm the same God, out of Exodus who bring manna from heaven. I'm gonna show you that I am Jesus, the Lord of all, the God of the universe. But as Christians, we become spiritually dull at times. And we could be sitting in service after service after service, hear testimony after testimony of God's goodness and grace in lives of church members. But the Lord reteaches lessons. He revisits lessons. Aren't you glad he does? I need these repeats. I mean, you may be reading, like, like, why are we even asking ourselves, why are we talking about this again? Well, evidently, we need to hear this again. The Lord repeats themes in the scriptures with maybe a different view, different angle, different, different type of illustration. This one is explicitly a repeat. Two different incidents. Some people think they're so similar that they're the same incident. No, they're two separate incidents right here as we see in chapter eight, but he reteaches things. That's why it's important for us not to have an I got it attitude. As a Christian, particularly if you've been a Christian for years and decades, you may, I already know the gospels, I got it. I've heard this story before, I've got it. As someone who grew up, didn't grow up in a Christian home, youth, you may be a, someone who's been blessed to grow up in a Christian home. I already got this, Mom. I I, I know this. I know this from Sunday school. I've heard this over and over and over. Well, evidently, even the disciples needed to hear things more than once. It's amazing as as you go through the scriptures, even the same portions of scriptures, how the Lord illuminates new things in our minds and even ministers to us in a unique way since we may be going through different experiences. We do not want to have an I got it attitude. All right, we don't want to have, I got it. Because when, as soon as it says, I got it, that's when he start stopping to grow. And so we want to be humble, hungry, even be open to different experiences that seem the same. Why am I going through this again? Perhaps your response, just like the disciples are the same, and you need to go through that lesson. Perhaps if you don't want it, a repeat lesson, maybe instead of looking inwardly or at others, we need to get our eyes towards heaven. Perhaps that's the lesson. Whatever you're going through right now, you may be going through some kind of a spiritual deja vu right now as well. That's an encouraging thing now for us to see how the Lord patterns his ministry. He he doesn't just change all of a sudden. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. This doesn't surprise me if we're going through repeat lessons. It's important for us to know this, how he deals with us, so that we don't get discouraged, so we understand that we're actually encouraged because, oh, he hasn't forgotten about me. I also wanna draw one more application here out of this feeding of the 4,000. I talked to you at length about what's similar, but I wanna talk about what's different here. There are a few differences, and there's one huge difference. What's the difference? The geographic location. The first feeding of the 5,000 happened in Jewish territory where Jews were gathered, and pretty much the 5,000, 10,000, 15,000, 20,000 were pretty much Jews. This is Decapolis, it's basically Gentile territory. What does that mean? That means most of the 4,000, 12,000, 20,000, however many people were there, were mostly non-Jews, pagan. They didn't have the Old Testament. But many commentators believe that there were certainly Jews there as well. Well, what what does this mean? I, I believe this is a future picture of the church someday where the Bible says that the church will be filled with every tribe, every tongue, every nation, right? Where the Lord is giving a preview of how he's going to expand the kingdom beyond the Jewish people, beyond the Israelites, the seed of Abraham to the whole world. And in Galatians 3, it says there is neither no Jew nor Greek or Gentile. There is neither slave nor free. There's no male or female, female. for you are all one in Christ, Jesus. Right? This is a picture of... Of the church. I want to share a story with you, a kind of intimate story. Some of our older members already know this, but for the benefit of our newer people. Upon my interview, I think about 2000, uh, top of 2017, the church leadership asked me, what would change if you were to come here at Evergreen Baptist Church and serve as senior pastor? And those who sat on the board, I think you remember this, but I want to share this. One thing I shared is this. There are about four or five things that I said, but one thing that I said was this. I see Evergreen Baptist Church being a ministry for the San Gabriel Valley. Whoever from the San Gabriel Valley or in this area wants to come, let them come and be part of this church, we, and we want to encourage that. And so... Historically, we've been a ministry for English-speaking Asian Americans, and we even said that in our mission statement. But I said, we're going to open this up. And you can kind of see how what's happening with the Spanish language ministry, the local visitations. Even as I look out, I see a lot of non-Asians out here. And I believe that God has been doing a work in our church from the beginning here and has expanded it from a very strictly Japanese-American church to an Asian-American church to... San Gabriel Valley Church. I mean, this is what we what we've been seeing here. I think that's pretty exciting. And there's there's a story as I sat right there in the second row where Eric Abbe is sitting right there, and I sat with one of our dear saints, a saint who's in heaven now, Itzko Teragawa. Itsuko is a longtime pillar of our church, prayer warrior. The sister said this to me, and whenever she spoke. You listen. <laughs> even if she, she was soft-spoken, you, you, I'm listening there after service, after preaching. And she said, Pastor, God is going to use this time or use you to be, bring us into the Hakujin world. That's basically mean the white world. I mean, and I kind of understood what she meant. She just means that God's going to open up every church to a wider evangelical world. And that's exactly what the Lord's been doing. I mean, even last week, having Pastor Dennis preach all day from Kazakhstan, that's an emblem of what the Lord is doing, and I'm so encouraged, because I know that the Lord was stretching the 12 as they're handing out food to Jews and Gentiles, as is all right, Lord, what are we doing here? It would make sense for them to hand out baskets to Jews, but now the Lord was stretching them as he handing out, they're handing out baskets to Gentiles and Jews, but also I've been, I know that the Lord perhaps has been stretching some of us as we embrace this new movement of the Lord. I've been super encouraged to see how people have been rallying around the Spanish language ministry. I've been very encouraged to see other people join in in the, in the uh, local visitations. I've been encouraged to see our people invite all kinds of folks to the service. That's encouraging to see as a pastor, to see us embrace one another. I've been encouraged to see how we've embraced Pastor Hugo and his family. And as you see a lot of faces out here that clearly have done that, that encourages my soul. And that's very encouraging. I just want you to know that that's kind of a more of a personal family application right there. Let's go to our next scene. They change scene here to verse 10. It says, I'm going to try to say this as best I can. I've been stumbling over this word all week long. Dalmanutha. Dalmanutha. All right, Dalmanutha. They go to Dalmanutha. Scholars don't even know quite exactly where that is, but Matthew 16 says it's in Migdal or, or uh, Mary Magdalene is from. So they go back to G, uh, Jewish territory. They go from the east side to the west side. And now we get point number two. How does Jesus deal with spiritual dullness? Point number two, Jesus recognizes lures. What is a lure? Jesus recognizes lures. I know it's fishing season, gentlemen. I know a lot of us like to go to Mammoth but I here because of the winter conditions things there might be snow and ice still but always the question is what's biting right now right what's biting what kind of bait are you using what are you using live or power bait or some kind of lure you put garlic, garlic spray all those sort of things come to mind but right here verse 11 as it changed scenes to jewish ter- jewish territory the pharisees show up conveniently and the pharisees are setting a bait for Jesus. They're casting a line with a bait on it, with a lure on it, and Jesus isn't biting. Jesus isn't biting. Let's look at verse 11 here. And the Pharisees came out and began to argue with him. They're picking a fight with Jesus. Is Jesus going to fall for this? Seeking from him a sign from heaven, testing him. A sign from heaven. What do you mean? Pharisees, what do they want? According to commentators, they want something beyond the miracle of healing a deaf person. They want something beyond healing a crippled man or a leprous person. They want something, a cosmic spectacular sign like fire from heaven, like as Elijah called fire from heaven. They want something like that. They want something as if the windows of heaven will be opened up and bread will be raining down from heaven. They want that type of miracle. But it says this. Verse 11, they're testing him. That word testing is peirazo, which also could be translated tempt. They were tempting him. John 2 says that Jesus knew all men. He knows, he knows exactly the motivation of everybody. And Jesus is not falling for this trap. He knew that hardness of heart. And he goes, it's a trap. I'm not going to bite on this. He knew that they were not sincere. This reminds me of the time when Satan tempted Jesus in the wilderness, does it not? Forty days, fasting, all of a sudden Jesus is physically starving. And Satan appears and begins to test or tempt Jesus in the wilderness. And says, if you are the son of man, turn these stones into bread. Jesus says no. Then he takes Jesus to the top of the temple and says, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down and the angels will come and rescue you, show yourself to be God. And the Lord responded, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. This is exactly what these Pharisees were doing. They're trying to bait him. They're trying to tempt him. And look what uh, James Edwards says in his Mark commentary. I I thought this was very helpful for us. Faith that depends on proof is not faith. I'm going to say that again. Faith that depends on proof is not faith, but only veiled doubt, veiled doubt. If a man hires a private eye to spy on his wife while he is away in order to prove her faithfulness, the detective's proof will scarcely guarantee the husband's faith. Faith is like love itself. It it cannot be proven. It can only be demonstrated by trust and active commitment. So the Lord knew. This was not a sincere seeking after. Are you God? We want to know so we can worship you. This is, are you God? Are you going to submit to our plans here? How does Jesus respond? Jesus does not acquiesce to what they wanted. Verse 12, Mark 8, verse 12 says this, And sighing deeply in his spirit. He was grieved. He was heartbroken. Heartbroken, he said, Why does this generation seek a sign? Truly I say to you, no sign will be given to this generation. No sign. Jesus says, I will not be manipulated. And Mark 16 adds another wrinkle to this. Jesus says the only sign that will be given will be the sign of what? Jonah, right? The sign of Jonah. What is the sign of Jonah? Jonah was in the belly of the fish for three days. How long was Jesus in the tomb? Three days, meaning Jesus would be killed, and he'll be buried for on, and re- resurrect on the third day. That's the sign of Ju- Jonah, his death and resurrection. And what does Jesus do? Look, look at what else, does, how else does Jesus respond to this attack by the Pharisees, this trap? Verse 13, leaving them, he again embarked and went away to the other side. Does Jesus waste a lot of time with the Pharisees here at this point? No. Oh. He says, "I'm going to give you the sign of Jonah," and then he leaves. I got other things. Time is limited. My my death is coming soon. I got to go minister to other people. I got to train the twelve disciples. And really, what the Lord is showing to the twelve disciples is how He deals with contentiousness. Is this a sincere like I need to know you, Jesus? A very a sincere curiosity, or are they just trying to pick a fight? You can't fool the Lord. Curious or contentious. This is an application for our evangelism. I know many of us are actively trying to evangelize people. Our coworkers, maybe a spouse, maybe family members. I've, talk, I've spoken to several of us in here that I know are actively evangelizing people. And for whatever reason, they don't come to know the Lord yet. And at times, it's very difficult. And I I think there's a huge word of encouragement how the Lord responds to the Pharisees. Is that we need to be able to evaluate, do they have an agenda to push? Are they coming to pick a fight? Are they coming just to argue with us? If we learn anything from the Lord in this case, I think that we learn a lot to have peace with tell them about the sign of Jonah, tell them about Jesus' death and resurrection to save sinners and by repenting of our sins and trusting in his death and resurrection, we can be saved. Tell them that. And then move on. It's, and, and interesting, in verse 13, it says, and leaving them. It, it clearly, Mark uh, in, uh, makes it clear that he left the Pharisees. Jesus left the Pharisees. There is a point that Mark is making. He did not want to linger around that situation. So, what do, some, the Pharisees weren't relatives to Jesus. I understand that. Some situations are close to home. Doesn't mean you don't, stop, you don't talk to them. Perhaps you just got to discern when you get in these spiritual conversations is this a genuine uh, seeking or is this more just kind of an opportunity to pick a fight? You have to be able to know that. You have to be able to know that. Share the gospel clearly. Give them the sign of Jonah, his death and resurrection, to save sinners. And pray for their souls and move on. Move on. No one was argued into the kingdom of heaven. No one. It's about the work of the Lord. The work of the Lord regenerates on the work of the Lord, gives spiritual sight, spiritual hearing. That's what the Lord does. And then they understand. And then like the prodigal, they come to their senses and return back to the Father. Okay, let's change scenes. your final point here. Scene change. They, in verse uh, 13 says, They embarked and went away to the other side. Now, how does Jesus deal with spiritual dullness? Point number three, Jesus removes leaven. Jesus removes leaven. This is a dire warning. This is one of the more serious statements that the Lord gives. Verse 15, and they had, at verse 15 says, And he was giving orders to them saying, Watch out! Watch out! Beware, these are strong words. Be careful, listen to me. Did you just see what happened right there? Listen to me. And you would think that the disciples would be like, all ears, I mean, that was, that was an ugly confrontation with the Pharisees, now all of a sudden the Lord is addressing that. You would think, you would think that, okay, yes, let me listen, but, but what does verse 16 say? They began to discuss one another the fact that they had no bread. Cuz verse 14 said they didn't bring enough bread, they didn't bring enough lunch. They start talking about we don't have enough food. Like what are you talking about? Verse 17 the Lord corrects them and Jesus aware of this in verse 17 said to them, "Why do you discuss the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet understand or perceive? Do you have a heart and heart? Having eyes, do you not see? Having ears, do you not hear?" And do you not remember the feeding of the 5,000? Do you not remember the feeding of the 4,000 that just happened? What is going on? Do you not yet understand? Why were the 12 so spiritually dull? This is a big one now. This is, I spent extra time on this because this was so insightful. The Lord gives us so many clues here on telling us why we're so spiritually dull at times. I think the answer is in verse 15 here. And he was giving orders to them saying, watch out, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. I believe that the 12 were influenced or infected by the leaven of the Pharisees and Herod. I mean, they grew up as Jews. They grew up in this territory. They were saturated by this teaching, this influence. What does leaven mean? Leaven is basically a metaphor for influence. Leaven, yeast, is used to rise bread in bread making. Okay, from flat bread to regular bread. You sprinkle this leaven or yeast in there and it grows the bread. All right? This, but in the New Testament, leaven or yeast is seen... Generally, as a sinful influence. There's a handful of times we talk about the leaven of, uh, or the leaven of the kingdom of heaven. Once or twice, it's used in a positive sense, but other times it's negative. In other words, it's 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 used as a metaphor for a corrupting agent within our lives. First Corinthians five, being one of them, six and seven says this. Do you not know a little leaven leavens the whole lump talking to a sinning member in the Corinthian church? Clean out the old leaven so that you may be a new lump. You need to address that sinful person or you need to address that sinful teaching that's taking place in the church. Otherwise, it's going to mess up the whole thing in, in simple terms. <laughs> but just like yeast, this influence is very subtle. Yeast is tiny, right? It's small but powerful, in, in other words, you put the yeast in the, in the lump, and it changed the form of the whole mass. It, 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 it morphs into something different. And it's interesting, as I study this a little bit, I'm not a bread maker, some of you guys are, so I'm careful what I say, because then you're going to call me out if I say something wrong about bread making. But I get the big picture here, all right? I get the big picture here. Yeast is added to the dough, the dough rises, but it's still a bread-like substance, but it becomes a different form. And what do you get when you take the Christian lump, Christianity, and you inject some of, the, some of this leaven, the leaven of the Pharisees, the leaven of Herod? What happens? What happens here? Well, Satan is very influential. He's very smart. He's very strategic. He deals with subtle lies. And what he does is he takes God's truth and twists it just a few degrees. Just a few degrees. He He sometimes does this, but oftentimes in the church, he'll take the truth of God and twist it. Has God said? Has God said? Just twist it a few degrees, and then so we're off all of a sudden years and generations later. And basically out of that, he creates a false religion. This is very critical for us to understand this. What did Pastor MacArthur say in our Q&A back in February? What is, somebody asked, I think somebody asked, what is the greatest need in the church today? You guys remember what he said? He said discernment. Discernment where he believes church, local churches and churches lack discernment. They believe everything. They let everything that's Christian come into the church and influence church. So what is the leaven of the Pharisees? Let me take a few moments to explain each type of leaven. Luke 12, 1 says that the leaven of the Pharisees is hypocrisy. Hypocrisy, putting on the front, wearing a mask, focusing on your appearance more than the heart. See, what did the Pharisees do? They took the word of God. They they definitely would be able to say, we care about God's word, but they would add to the word and create a different standard and, and create something called legalism. You need to do this beyond the Bible so that you could be holy and right. This is what the Pharisees did. They give the appearance of godliness, but they changed the whole religion. The heart of it was not love of God, but the heart of it is love of man, the approval of man. That's really the heart of it. So basically, you take love of Christ out and you implant the love of man. I care what people think. Therefore, that motivates me to act a certain way. That's the leaven of the Pharisees. And what happens here now? This is very important now in in honor-shame culture now. In the Middle East, that was certainly an honor-shame culture. Many of us come from honor-shame cultures. When we are motivated by honor and shame, this leaven of the Pharisees makes a lot of sense to us. We better keep up a certain appearance. We better not talk about our sin. We better not talk about our temptation. We better put up a front. Honor and shame culture, this is like a greenhouse for growing yeast of the Pharisees. I mean, it just proliferates like crazy in this type of environment. And... What you get is spiritual materialism, where you care about what things, how you look more than what God thinks. External appearance, emphasis on achievements, emphasis on serving to be seen, emphasis on just morality and wisdom, living with certain morals, certain wisdoms. That's why the more public the ministry, like this is the most dangerous ministry that we have here. This is so public that everyone's assembled for this moment is my heart worshiping the Lord right now? Anytime you serve, whether it's welcoming or teaching the kids, teaching ace, going in the paradise trip, is this for God or is this for me? We need to be discerning within our hearts because if the leaven of the Pharisees take root in us, then Christianity becomes something real to simply becoming a show. Let's put the next mask on hypocrisy. The leaven of Herod. What is the leaven of Herod? I believe it's worldliness. It's still hypocrisy, but Herod was clearly someone who loved the world. In in, in Mark 6, John the Baptist says, you cannot have this woman, Herodias, as your wife. This is evil. This is wrong. You can't have your brother's wife. Mark 6 says that 620 says that he enjoyed listening to John the Baptist he enjoyed Herod enjoyed listening to John the Baptist yet he loved being with Herodias more this is the leaven of Herod where you love the world so much you don't mind listening to the word like man that was super convicting pastor but I'm going back to what I love the most that's Herod I love hearing from John the Baptist, man, you're so eloquent, you're so deep, but I got to have my wife. That is John the Baptist, I mean, uh, uh, Herod, the yeast of Herod. What is the heart behind this yeast or this leaven? It's love of the world. Love of the world. And I believe when this type of yeast is combined into the church, what you get is this. A pragmatic tolerance, like, okay, this is going to affect your job, so God understands. You don't need to obey him. Keep fudging. You'll be fine. Okay, God understands how you feel inside, so you could have that immoral relationship. It's okay. Pragmatic tolerance. I mean, basically, the lie that's twisted is grace. God has grace over you. And Satan twists that grace with that yeast and turns into hyper grace as if God forgives everything like he doesn't care. As he's a disconnected father, like whatever, like you could do whatever, I'll still love you. You may hear things like, who are you to judge? When When you lovingly talk to somebody about sin, that person gets upset because you're like, why are you judging me? Well, I thought I loved you and I'm coming to help you. I care about your holiness. See, the word is received freely. There's no opposition that way, but yet there's no obedience. Holiness is not a big deal. And whenever that that takes place in a local church, that means Christianity becomes really fake all of a sudden. Your kids know it, you know it, and you're just going through the motions, and you're just showing up, and really we don't take seriously what the word of God says. I want to share something personal, my heart, how the Lord was transforming me. I, when, I, when we moved up to Seattle in 2010, I, I could see some of this leaven in me. I could see some of this leaven in me. I, I think, I'm pretty sure I genuinely loved the Lord and I was a saved man. But when you're in it, it's kind of hard to see. It's kind of like the frog in the kettle that gets warmed up over time. You know, When you get out of the situation, you're like, whoa, there are some things that are wrong here. In 2010, I, I love reading the Bible, yet I, I think the Lord was revealing to me as he was removing me from a situation that I loved. I love Southern California. I love coaching at my university. I love the people here. I loved all that. But the Lord removed all that from me. The Lord was humbling me. Instead of having friends and people and activities to turn to, now I'm like he's drawing me to the word at 4 o'clock, 5 o'clock in the morning while it's still dark up in Seattle. I'm just reading, reading. And the Lord convicted me, and I, saw, I realized that I was seeing God's word as more of a divine self-help book. How to be a better father. How to be a better leader. How to be a moral person. How do I handle my life with wisdom? Not wrong things. I don't think I was chasing after immoral things. these. But I realized, as Jonathan Edwards says, the hypocrite desires the things of God rather than God. I thought I saw myself as a hypocrite where I desired the wisdom of God, the principles of God, godly people to be around, godly friends. Yet did I want God? I was missing it and I finally it hit me and this is part of my testimony and how I became a pastor. I just, it hit me like more people need to know this, that the Bible is more than this. The Bible is about Jesus Christ. The Bible is about Loving God and knowing Christ through the word. That's really what this is about. He needs to be central. So what these yeasts do is this. They remove the centrality of Christ and plug in something else. Masked and veneered with Christianity. As I am Christian, yet the heart of it is something else than Christ. That becomes a false religion. We, be, we become false worshipers at that point. We go down and start worshiping the golden calf of our lives at that point. So before we start pointing the fingers at the Israelites, we need to see this in our own lives. We need to have discernment so we're not like the frog in the kettles at 10, 20, 30, 40, 50 years living this way. We need to be able to understand what's going on. Parents, what ingredients are you sprinkling into your discipleship of the home? This is very important. Do we emphasize the world? I mean, meaning, when we speak, we could say, hey, hey, we gotta love Jesus. Yet, how'd you do in your homework? How did that happen? What school are you getting into? How does your practice go? Do we get more raised up for those things of life? Is appearance most important to you? Your children could see if you are genuinely confronted by the presence of God, or is it more, oh, who, who, who was there? What? What? You said that in front of people? I have a risky proposition for you parents today, no no matter how old or young you are, okay? Or if you're a spiritual parent, if you're discipling somebody, I want you to, uh, this is a risky uh, proposition now, but it would be worth it. It might hurt the answer that comes back, but I think that Nick will help us to become more healed, all right? Number one, Ask your children or your spiritual children on the way home today, what does mom or dad love the most? What do I love the most? And be ready to receive that answer humbly and just accept it. Either rejoicing or mourning, or whatever the answer it is. What does mom or dad love the most? Whoever you're discipling, hey, what, what, what do I love the most? If your children are grown up, ask them what was most important to mom and dad or me as you're being raised up. I do the same thing, I do the same thing. So if we really wanna take this discernment process seriously, ask the people around you, ask the people around you. In conclusion now, how does Jesus deal with spiritual dullness? Graciously very graciously. At Exodus 32, the Lord relented. All right. He was angry. To, to say he's not angry as sinners, you got to be kidding me. He seemed pretty angry there. But yeah, he relented. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Okay, I'm going to keep my promise. The Lord is gracious. And how the Lord handles the disciples here, he says at Mark 8, 21, do you not yet understand? Mark's Matthew 16, the parallel passage finishes up with this. Matthew 16, 12, they finally get it because they started to understand that it was not about the yeast or the leaven of the bread, but the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. They understood it's not about the bread. It's about the bread of life. They're getting it. They're getting it. It's all about Jesus and who he is. They're starting to understand it's about Christ. It's about Yahweh himself. We're dealing with God. God who graciously, patiently repeats lessons, who graciously recognizes lures to teach me how to handle adverse situations, who graciously removes leaven or yeast from my life so that I can see more clearly the reason why the 12 are spiritually dull is because they're infected by this. Their eyes had spiritual glaucoma on them. Now I wanna ask you, through his word, Jesus' word, Do you not yet understand, Evergreen Church? Do you not yet understand? I'm going to read a helpful quote from John Piper and finish here. John Piper writes or says, The critical question for our generation and for every generation is this. One question. If you could have heaven with no sickness and with all the friends you ever had on earth, like a reunion, and all the food you ever liked and all the leisures, le, uh, leisure activities you ever enjoyed and all the natural beauties you ever saw and all the physical pleasure you ever tasted and no human conflict or, or natural disasters, could you be satisfied with heaven? If Christ were not there, ask yourself that question, do I really want to just go to live forever and be happy knowing that Jesus Christ is not going to be there, not even care, indifferent if he's there or not. If it's yes to any degree, then there's some leaven in us to work out, right? And God graciously will meet us upon repenting of these things. We can praise the Lord because his mercy is more. We're going to sing in a second. We could praise the Lord because stronger than darkness, new every morning, or sins there are many, his mercy is more. Trust the mercy and the love and kindness of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Take these things to him. But knowing is half the battle. Discernment, church family, we have to be able to see this yeast, this leaven in our lives to help our spiritual dullness let's pray Heavenly Father we thank you for your gracious care for us thank you that you show us how you gently and patiently teach the 12 disciples who are hard hearted and stiff necked at times even spiritually dull we're like this as well so thank you Father for your son Jesus Christ who is the greatest treasure of all Forgive us for being dull ourselves. Forgive us for flirting with these golden calves of our own. Lord, give us clarity of vision. Clear out this fog out of our spiritual minds and heads so that we could discern the leaven in our lives. Father, we have removed the leaven from us. Help us experience more of your loving kindness and grace upon our lives. Lord, you are so kind, you are so gentle. Thank you for pointing these things out to us this morning. What a Savior. Thank you, Lord Jesus. In Jesus' name, amen.